Exodus 20, 22 through 25. Then Yahweh told Moshe, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, you must not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. I appreciate everybody for being here and being so attentive to these lessons. This is going to be my last lesson on this block of verses in the Torah. There is more material to cover on this subject. I think many subjects are just ever-giving in the Bible. And I think this is one of them. But for now, I feel like Yahweh is leading me to move on to the next verse. I think I've exhausted my knowledge on this subject for the present time. Have you ever studied a subject and you got to a point to where you felt like that's all I can take right now? And then maybe five years later you pick the subject back up and then you could add to it because you matured not just as a person but spiritually in wisdom and in knowledge. Well, I pray that Yahweh continues to grow me in age and in wisdom on this subject. But after today, I feel like it's time to move on to the next verse in our Torah study. So what we'll do today is we'll begin with some questions in general that I've gotten. We're going to answer some questions. Then we're going to deal with a text in Jeremiah 7. And then we're going to move into meat-eating versus vegetarianism or veganism. There may be some things that I say today that you may not agree with or believe in, and that's fine. It's okay. You don't have to agree with everything that the preacher says. <laughs> it's in a one-man show. Um, I'm just the messenger. I just do my best to study and bring forth the, the lesson. First question we'll cover that I've gotten frequently. Brother Matthew, are you really saying that we should still be offering animal sacrifices today on our personal properties? My answer to that is, that is exactly what I'm saying. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. So long as your property is dedicated to the service of Yahweh, I believe it is permissible to offer sacrifices as individual believers as expressions of thanksgiving, appreciation, and fellowship. And I'm seeing this as an act or action of worship, much like prayer, much like fasting. It's not something that if we do, but it's something when we do. Next question, what kind of private sacrifices are permissible? The command in Exodus 20 verse 24 specifies two, the burnt offering and the peace offering. Let's talk about those two as well as the grain here for just a few minutes. The burnt offering in Hebrew is the olah. It's the ascending offering. It's entirely consumed on the altar. The worshiper has nothing to partake of it. It's a total gift to the Almighty, telling Him, I'm thankful for what you've done. Here is a gift, an expensive gift, something that means a lot to me. It's the best bull I've got. And I give it to you, Yahweh. It's the one that is a sacrifice. It's the one that your flesh doesn't want to give. If you give something you don't want to give, it's not really a sacrifice. I heard a preacher one time say that he was taking up gifts for a missionary trip and one lady said that she had some tea bags to give and she gave used tea bags. That's not a sacrifice. <laughs> You don't give somebody used tea bags. You give them the best that you've got if you're giving to the poor. So it has to be a sacrifice. This is the Olah. 
Sometimes the olah was used for seeking Yahweh's favor. Sometimes in the Bible it was used for averting judgment. We saw King David do that in 2 Samuel 24. This is what Noah offered when he got off the ark. Burnt offerings of the clean animals and the clean birds. The olah. It appears to me though that even though the animal is completely consumed on the altar, the blood was still drained from the animal. We don't eat the blood. We don't drink the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So any kind of blood puddings or anything like that is off limits for the worshiper of Yahweh. Leviticus 17, 13, Deuteronomy 12, 16, and 24 mention pouring the blood out on the ground like water and covering it over with dirt. I think that's a good practice. It is possible that in some cases, even in private sacrifices, the blood is placed or sprinkled on the altar or poured out on the altar and burned, but of this I am not yet sure. So I have to do more study and meditation. Maybe you can help me on that. Next is the peace or the fellowship offering. It's the shalamim in Hebrew, and you see there in that word shalamim, you see that shalom, peace. But shalom doesn't just mean peace, it means wholeness, well-being, prosperity, health, wealth, and all that goes along with that. So we can translate into English sometimes as peace offering, sometimes as fellowship offering, because when we offer the shalamim, oftentimes it's not just talking about fellowship between us and Yahweh, but fellowship between us as brothers and sisters. So if I was to offer a shalamim, I would not invite an unbeliever to partake of it, but I would invite Sister Roseanne and Brother Rocket and Sister Phyllis. We're going to have a fellowship offering. They're my brothers and my sisters in the faith. See, That's the shalamim. The blood is still not partaken of, and the fat portions are burned on the altar for the peace offering. The rest of the animal is eaten by people that are in covenant with the Creator. It's a sign of fellowship. According to Leviticus 19, 5 through 8, most peace offerings were only to be eaten for two days, and then if aught remained to the third day, it was to be burned with fire. Now, with the, the Pesach offering, the Passover, it's a little bit different. You can only eat it on one night, right? And then we burn it early the next morning. That is an exception to the general rule. Now, Exodus 20 doesn't mention grain offerings. The grain offering in Hebrew is the minkah. It is a vegan offering. It was oftentimes accepted to bring vegan offerings if you were poor. People say the God of the Old Testament wasn't very merciful. Sure he was. If you were too poor to bring a big animal, then you could bring some turtle doves or some pigeons. If you were too poor to bring some pigeons, then he said you can bring some grain. He accepts the poor. He doesn't respect persons like that, over rich over poor, or poor over rich. The grain offering, however, is mentioned by a proved example in Judges 13 with the example of Manoah, Samson's dad, where Yahweh accepted, through the angel, Yahweh accepted the burnt offering and grain offering that Manoah offered on the rock, one unhewn rock, in obedience to Exodus 20, verse 24. You can read about the grain offerings in Leviticus chapter 2. There the Levite priest is involved. It is an edible sacrifice. But grain offerings were also done apart from the priest according to Genesis 4 with Cain. Now the first thing we think of is, or maybe you think of if you're a good Bible student, well Cain was rejected though, Brother Matthew. That's a great thought. But remember, did not Yahweh say, if you bring it right, won't you be accepted? So therefore Cain could have brought a proper grain offering and he would be accepted. Some people think Cain wouldn't have been accepted no matter what. Not according to that verse. What about sacrifices for sin? This is the big one that people come up with. And I have developed and 
being educated in the Scriptures and by listening to men wiser than myself over the years in this, and there was a time that I wouldn't say what I'll preach now. First of all, I haven't seen any examples in the Bible of private sin sacrifices, like private personal sin offerings. The sin offering in Hebrew is the chata'at. That's my favorite one to say. <laughs> and the guilt offering is the asham. These are the only two offerings that deal with sin. It is a mistake to think that every animal sacrifice dealt with sin. But when I grew up in church, you may have thought the same thing. I thought all animal sacrifices had to do with sin. That's what I thought. And I studied the Bible and, thought, and found out, hey, most of them have nothing to do with sin. So the first three we went over have nothing to do with sin. These two do. For now, I won't be making any of these, but I want to make two things clear. Number one, I do not believe sin sacrifices are a bad thing. I'm talking about animal sacrifices for sin. I don't think they're a bad thing. Yahweh implemented them so they're good and they're righteous and they have their place. Number two, I don't believe the animal sacrifices for sin ever took care of sin on the eternal redemptive scale. Remember the sermon I taught, the better blood of the Messiah. How the animal sacrifices have their function. The blood of the Messiah has its function. The blood of the Messiah cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living Elohim. It allows us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Isaiah 52, 53, the whole book of Hebrews, Peter talks a lot about it. You weren't redeemed with the uh, blood of a lamb, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of the Messiah. He's like a lamb without blemish or spot. So in saying that I think the animal sacrifices are good, I do not mean that they have anything to do with what the Messiah does for us, but they have their place upon the earth, earthly forgiveness, entrance into the earthly tabernacle, etc., so if the temple still stood and the Levite priesthood was still active, I would personally have no problem offering a sin sacrifice. Here's a couple of examples. Mary brought one with Joseph when she went to the temple in Luke chapter 2. And she had just recently birthed Yahweh's Messiah. He was only about 40 days old, a little bit over, over that, when she went to the temple after the days of purification. And she knew who he was. Read Luke chapter 1. She knew who was in her womb. Remember his cousin, Yohanan the washer, John the baptizer, leaped when Miriam and Elizabeth met each other. The babe leaped in the womb. There's you a good verse that life begins before the baby comes out of the mama. <laughs> because that baby wasn't but about six months in the womb and the Bible says that John leaped. It's filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in the womb. So don't tell me the little children can't understand and participate. Yahweh can deal with them just like he can deal with me. Hallelujah. Luke chapter 1. So Mary, she went and brought the sin offering, knowing that she was pregnant with Yahweh's Messiah and then birthed Yahweh's Messiah. And then Paul, the apostle Shaul in Acts 21. I've taught a whole sermon on this. There was a rumor going around about Shaul and they were saying he teaches the Jewish people to forsake the law of Moses and not circumcise their children. And Elder Yaakov, the main bishop there at the congregation in Jerusalem, he said, hey, Let's put this rumor to rest. We've got four men with a vow. Pay the expenses of their sacrifices and let their heads be shaved. And if you know the Torah, you know that's the Nazarite vow, the vow of the Nazir. And so Paul was going to pay for the animal sacrifices. This is years after the ascension of the Messiah to heaven. And Paul saw no problem with offering up sacrifices. 
Well, one of the sacrifices at the end of the vow of the Nazir is a year-old, unblemished, female lamb for a sin offering, a chata'at. So Paul saw no problem with it, and that would mean that Brother Matthew sees no problem with it. Paul said, follow me as I follow the Messiah. <laughs> so I'll follow Paul in that. Once again, they purified the flesh, not the conscience. They pertain to the earthly, not the heavenly. Next question. But, Brother Matthew, are you encouraging people to start doing these burnt peace and grain offerings? Yes, I am, but with care and with caution. With care and with caution. I'm encouraging these personal private sacrifices because I think Exodus 20, 24 commands them. I don't think it's a suggestion. I think it's a commandment. And I see approved examples in Genesis and then in the books of Judges through 2 Kings. But I'm encouraging that they be done properly. Not that we just go out there without studying just because we've listened to a sermon and we say we're going to do this. No, we don't want to do anything haphazardly. We definitely don't want to offer up any strange fire that Yahweh commanded not, right? Leviticus chapter 10. So we do them with care and caution. Look at the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. Go back over the teachings I've done. If you decide to do a burn or a peace offering, do the very best you can. I am not saying that you will get it all right the very first time. I think about when I first started doing the Passover back in 98. Everybody thought I was crazy, but I read it in the Word. My father-in-law showed me there the Passover in Exodus 12 and Leviticus 23. And I said, I'm going to do it because I love Yahweh. And I think back now and I look about it and I can remember the very first one I did. And I remember, and it makes me cringe a little bit because I remember some things I didn't do right. But I graduated in my understanding on it now. Now... I think we got it down like clockwork, Brother TJ. <laughs> so, and I don't say that in a braggadocious way. I say it in a humble way. And I'm thankful that Yahweh has gifted us the wisdom and the desire to do those things. No matter what anybody says. No matter what anybody says. So, I want to make the point here at this juncture. I want to make the point here that I haven't found any examples, any approved examples of women in Israel offering up these sacrifices by themselves. Now, that shouldn't make the women feel inferior. There's some laws that apply to women. There's some laws that apply to men. There's some laws that apply to both sexes. So I haven't found any examples of women doing this by themselves. All the approved examples I've found have been men and mostly the heads of the households. I'm not saying that women can't be present I just don't see any scriptural precedent for a woman offering a sacrifice by herself. So I would encourage the sisters in Yahweh that would like to be in part of this commandment to wait until you're around a righteous male servant, whether it be your husband or an elder, and then participate and seek to help in whatever way that you can. What about making the altar, Brother Matthew? How should I do this? Well, it is clear to me that the altars in the Bible were built for the purpose of offering animal sacrifices on. That's the purpose of the offering. Or maybe the minkah, the vegan offering too at times. Okay, Or the drink offering, the wine, the expensive wine. I'm not sure that the animal was placed on the altar and slaughtered. I think Sister Kim and I discussed this a couple weeks back. I think that it probably was slaughtered not while it was on the altar. The blood was drained out. The animal died and either the whole animal in the burnt offering was then placed on the altar and consumed 
or in the case of a shelamim, a peace offering, the fat portions were placed on the altar and consumed. Maybe the skin and the hide, some say it was buried, some say it was burnt later. I'm not sure about that, so I can't speak a whole lot to that. I do want to mention, I'm not going to go over the verse, but you can read this in your study time. There is a case in 1 Samuel 14, 31 through 35, where King Saul, this was before he got totally wrong, but King Saul had made his men take a vow that they wouldn't eat anything when they were fighting the Philistines. And then when the battle got over at evening time, some of the soldiers in Israel, they were so hungry, they were famished, that they took the spoils and they started killing the sacrifices on the ground. And the text says they, they ate the animals with the blood. The best commentary, at least the one that makes the most sense on this to me, was the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. You can check that one out. And it looks like that they were following uh, the custom of a lot of the pagans in the surrounding area that they would eat raw meat without properly draining the blood out of the animal. So you can check that out. But it mentions that they, they killed them on the ground and they ate the meat with the blood in it. I don't think that that is condemning all killing of animal animals that are laying on the ground. When we sacrifice the Passover lamb, we make sure that we do it where the blood drains out. Um, my children have been participating in watching the sacrifice of the Passover their whole life. And they've seen the blood drain out of the animal in accordance with Yahweh's law. We cover it over with dirt. And obviously we clean the animal, skin him and, and all of that and make sure that we don't eat the blood uh, with the animal. So you can check out that text in your study time. Again, as we continue to study, we learn and we grow. But we have to begin somewhere, right? As we learn better, we do better. I tell people all the time, they say, Brother Matthew, I don't understand various laws. And I say, you do the best you know how to do. Yahweh knows. Yahweh knows you do the best you know how to do. Then, as you learn better, maybe next year, two, three, four years from now, as you learn better, then you do better when you find out to do better. But you can only do the best you know to do. I have been asked about how to exactly make an altar. The picture on your left is supposed to be an altar of earth, uh, you know, I don't think that they really look like that, but then the one on the right is the stone altar, the unhewn stone. I don't think making the altar is complicated. I think that's the point of Exodus 20, 24. Do not make gods of silver and gods of gold. That was complicated. Instead, make an earth altar. Just get some dirt, pile it up, mound it up. An altar wasn't too high. The next verse we're going to cover next time I teach says, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not seen. So the altar wasn't too high where you had to go up by steps, but it was mounded up where you probably stood up and could reach it. You know, kind of like the ones that you're looking at there on the screen. And I think that they were simple. I think that's the point. They were primitive. They were simple. Either a mound of dirt or uncut rocks. It's up off the ground, but you're still able to reach it. So I don't think it's difficult at all or complicated. I want to move from there to Jeremiah 7, 22 through 23. Now this is Yahweh speaking in Jeremiah 7, 22-23, and He says this, For when I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offering and sacrifice. However, I did give them this command, Obey me, and then I will be your mighty one, and you will be my people. You must walk in every way I command you, so that it may go well with you. Some people try to use this verse to teach that all the passages in the Bible that speak about animal sacrifices and eating meat are later interpolations and additions to the Scriptures. 
that they did not originally belong there because Jeremiah 7, 22 through 23. Now, it is strange to me and it is a little bit humorous and funny to me that these people just accept Jeremiah 7 as being authentic. None of them say Jeremiah 7 is suspect. None of them say Jeremiah 7 is an interpolation. They say Jeremiah 7 is legit and all the other verses in the Torah about animal sacrifices and there's hundreds of them and eating of meat, there's hundreds of them. Those are all added by the lying pen of the scribes. Jeremiah 8 verse 8. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that? Jeremiah 8 8. I did a very thorough written exegesis on Jeremiah 8 verse 8. I can get that to you. I can send it to you on my blog and you can study that at a later time. But that's the verse that they misuse horribly to try to make their doctrine fit. But Jeremiah 7 is here. We're not going to do away with it. We're going to exegete it. We're going to understand it right. But what about it? Did Yahweh command about animal sacrifices when He brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Here He says, I did not do it. Did He? Well, you bet He did. Sure He did. As a matter of fact, the whole exodus from Egypt was predicated on the Passover where He said, take a male lamb of the first year without defect and sacrifice it. And when your son asks you, what, what is this? You say it's the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover when He passed over the houses in the land of Egypt. And He saved us because the blood of the Lamb was on the doorpost and the lintel. We're about to memorialize it next moon, not long at all from here. So He definitely commanded it. Then we have, what, Exodus twenty twenty four, where He commands it again at Mount Sinai immediately after the Ten Commandments. So Yahweh did command them about sacrifices and offerings when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what is Jeremiah 7 talking about? Not going to do a complete thorough exegesis. I've written extensively on this one as well. But if you go back and read the entire chapter of Jeremiah 7, what you'll see is Yahweh rebuking the Israelites for their overall disobedience. So they're disobeying Yahweh in all these different ways. They're, the big thing that they're not doing is they're not taking care of their widows and their orphans. They're actually serving other gods. They're making cakes for the queen of heaven in Jeremiah 7. They're trusting in the temple. They're saying the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, I'll be okay. It's like a, a good luck charm that they're using. But they're bringing the sacrifice to the temple and saying, ah, everything will be okay. I brought the sacrifice. It'll all go away. It'll all be all right. And it reminds me of how some people view the sinner's prayer in baptism. I have met a lot of people in my life that in their mind they think that because they said a prayer and they were baptized that it really doesn't matter how they live. I'm just saved by grace. I know I'm living in sin. I don't feel like repenting. I said that prayer. I did that. I got the t-shirt. I went down to the altar. It's like a good luck charm. As though Yahweh doesn't say, if you love me, you will obey me. Keeping of the commandments is evidence that you have the work of the Spirit in your heart and your mind. If there's no lifestyle change, there's no salvation. Uh, many scriptures we could go over for that. So, a sinner's prayer and baptism, is they're beautiful things. But not if you just go through the motion and say the prayer and repeat after the preacher and get, go underwater and then you are raised up and you still live the exact same way. Nothing has happened in your life, see. Nothing has happened in your life. You have to have a heart change, a mind change. Yahweh has to work on you through the power of His Spirit. So in His anger in Jeremiah 7, 
Yahweh is telling the Israelites, you keep your sacrifices for yourselves. I don't want them. Keep them for yourselves. And then he goes so far, and it's, it's, a, it's hyperbolic language when he says, I didn't command you about this. And what he's doing is he's speaking comparatively. He's speaking in this over that. Main thing versus minor thing. It's very similar to where Yeshua says, if you don't hate your wife, you can't follow me. Well, that would contradict a lot of verses that say, love your wife, right? <laughs> but he's saying comparatively, see. In other words, you can't love your spouse more than you love me. Whereas whether you're a husband or wife, if your spouse says, I don't want you to follow Yeshua, you have to love Yeshua more. That's what he's saying. And Yahweh is speaking comparatively. He's saying, look, yes, I know I said all that about the sacrifices, but they don't mean anything if you don't obey me. If you're not taking care of the widows and the orphans and they're going hungry and they don't have any clothes, I don't want you to bring the sacrifice. Take care of them first. Then bring me the sacrifice and I'll receive it at your hand. Comparative speaking is found in all over the Scriptures. I'll give one example. In Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph told his brothers when he was down in Egypt and he finally revealed himself to his brothers. He said, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. But his brothers did send him there. They threw him in the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. And he eventually ended up in Egypt. So his brothers did send Joseph to Egypt. But ultimately, comparatively speaking, who really did send Joseph to Egypt? Yahweh sent him to Egypt. It's comparative, see? It's not negating one. It's just one is over the other in importance. Sacrifice means nothing if it's not brought from a pure heart. What Yahweh ultimately desires is obedience. When we serve Him and then bring a sacrifice, it's acceptable, just like with our prayers or our baptism. None of us are perfect in the Torah. But if we live our lifestyle devoted to Yahweh, then we can look back on our prayer of repentance. We can look back on our baptism. It did mean something because we're a new creation. See, That's the understanding of that text. I'd like to end the sermon today by addressing the issue of meat-eating versus vegetarianism. Now, I feel led to address this because the more that I study about animal sacrifices, all the commands, all the approved examples, all the times that the phrase is used, a sweet-smelling savor unto Yahweh. I read it again in Genesis 8, 20-21 today when Noah got off the ark and offered up the burnt offerings. It said, Yahweh smelled the soothing savor. Some of them, translations say, Yahweh smelled the good aroma. <laughs> so it's neat to compare all the translations and how they read. Well, the more that I look at this, the more I think, and I believe that we've inherited, I've inherited some false beliefs about vegetarianism being preferred in the beginning over meat eating. I don't believe it ever was. I don't believe a follower of Yahweh, number one, has to be a, a vegetarian as some people try to push either gently or forcefully. Seventh-day Adventists are pretty bad about it. I met a Seventh-day Adventist man on a job one time. He said, what about that verse that says, it's not good to eat meat or to drink wine? And I was young. I think I was 16 years old. And I, I remember I asked my father-in-law about it that night. I wasn't nearly as well studied in the Scriptures as I am now. And I asked Brother Arnold about it. And I said, what about the verse? What's he talking about? Brother Arnold started laughing. He said, well, he didn't quote the whole verse. The Apostle Paul said it's not good to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So it's a specific context 
You don't want to drink wine around your brother if he has problems with alcohol. You don't want to embolden him to get drunk. And same thing with meats offered to idols. Brother TJ's taught on that before. So there's a context to that. Some vegetarians in Christianity try to push vegetarianism gently. Some try to push it forcefully. I don't believe you have to be a vegetarian. Number one, because Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, Yahweh commands, He says, of these, speaking of the clean animals, you may eat. So there you have the option to eat the clean animals. That's at least showing that meat eating is a righteous option. But, let me say this. I think and believe that it is a sin for a believer to be a complete vegetarian. And the reason I think that is because the Passover lamb is commanded to be eaten each year. So it would be a sin if you forsook that as a believer of Yahweh. Also, also, put ourselves back in the shoes of people that back then that raised animals and gave their firstborns and their burnt offerings and their peace offerings often. Firstborns of the flock were shelamim. They were, they were fellowship sacrifices, which means they were edible. Deuteronomy 15, starting at verse 19 and following, will show you that, that the firstborn offerings were edible sacrifices. So therefore, you could not be a vegan or a vegetarian and serve the Creator. It would be a transgression of the law to refrain from eating the meat of your sacrifice. So why do some Bible believers push being vegan, or at least they say it's preferred, or it's the original way? Well, what they do is they claim that the original diet in the Garden of Eden was vegan. And they base this on Genesis 1, 29-30, in part, where Elohim says, I have given you every seed-bearing plant and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you and the animals. I have given you every green plant for food. Genesis 1, 29-30. One time a man came to our congregation... And I could tell he wanted to talk to me. I was real busy that day, and I didn't get a chance to chat. But afterwards, the sermon, he said, Is there any way I can talk to you? I have something I want to ask you about. I said, Sure. Come early next week to Sabbath service, and we'll talk. And he showed up a couple hours early, and we sat in the back, and he wanted to talk to me about being a vegetarian, being a vegan. And this is the verse that he used, Genesis 1, 29 through 30. He says, I believe that we should be vegetarians or vegans because this is... Before sin enters the picture for Adam and Eve, this is the preferred way, and this is how Yahweh wants us to eat. And I asked him to turn to Genesis 2.25. Now, you all have Genesis 2.25 in your Bible. Anybody know what it says? Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. And I told this man, I said, so if we're supposed to be vegetarians because they were vegetarians before the fall, then that would mean if we're consistent that we're supposed to be naked because they were naked before the fall. He looked at me for about five seconds and he said, oh, Brother Matthew, I don't think we're ready for that one. <laughs> really nice brother. Never saw him since. Very nice brother. So, in my younger years of Bible study, I used to believe that meat-eating did not begin until Genesis 9. That meat-eating started after the flood in Genesis 9, where Yahweh told Noah that the fear and terror of him and his family would be in all the animals, and that every living creature will be food for you. Now, 
I've taught on this text before in Genesis 9 in relation to the dietary laws in that every living creature is still limited in context. I'm not going to teach on that now. You can go back and listen to that lesson showing why this does not contradict the dietary laws. This is not saying that Noah was allowed to eat pig or camel or wolf. And we, we, we think about pig, but we, don't, we never think about eating camel or wolf. Eating a wolf sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But, but if it's saying what people say it says, I'm saying that right, then it would be okay to eat the family dog. I mean, it would. It would be okay. But we know it's not. One vegan asked me one time, they said, Why, what makes you eat a cow and not a dog? They're both life. And I said, well, I follow the Creator. I said, Yahweh says a cow is permissible, a dog is not. Walks on all four paws. It's unclean. Leviticus 11. I didn't really know what to say after that. I later came to the conclusion that Genesis 9 was not the first time animals were eaten. And I based that primarily on two texts in Genesis prior to this. Genesis 4 and Genesis 7. Genesis 4 with Abel. Genesis 7 with Noah. Genesis 4 shows that Abel made an offering of the firstling of his flock with the fat portions. And I knew the rest of the Torah. So I knew the firstling of the flock was an edible sacrifice. It was a peace offering or a fellowship offering. Then Noah... In Genesis 7, Elohim told him when he was loading up the animals on the ark, he said, you take this many clean animals and this many unclean animals. Of the unclean, it was one pair, a male and its female. And of the clean, it was seven pairs, a male and its female. So 14 of the clean ones. Obviously, we understand it's because of sacrificial purposes, eating purposes, right? So the clean and unclean designations are seen in Leviticus and Deuteronomy specifically to be about what may be eaten by the follower of Yahweh. So I think that Genesis 7 shows that they ate meat before the flood. Some people try to argue and say the clean and unclean designations are only for sacrifice, Brother Matthew. Some people have argued that way. And I think, I'm not saying this to be rude, I think that's a shallow understanding because it dismisses that most of the sacrifices were eaten. Only one, the burnt offering, was not eaten. The rest of the sacrifices were eaten by somebody, whether it was the priest or the worshiper. So sacrificing and the eating of meat, they, they go hand in glove. So I came to see that Genesis 9, what it's doing in a nutshell, it's contrasting, this is very common in Hebrew, it's contrasting one thing with something that's prohibited. So it's contrasting the eating of meat with the prohibition in Genesis 9 not to eat the blood. It's the first time we read the prohibition not to eat the blood is in Genesis 9. I'm not saying it didn't exist before then, but that's the first reading of it. So he's saying, you may do this except for this. That's a very common thing in the, in the Hebrew Bible. He also tells Noah in Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That doesn't mean that that was the first time that, that command was given. Well, we know in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He was reiterating for emphasis. So what about Genesis 1, 29 through 30? Was the original diet before the fall vegan? Well, I used to think so. I started off growing up when I got a teenager thinking Genesis 9 was the first time they ate meat. Then I backtracked that, more mature in my studies to Genesis 4 and 7. And then I thought, well, before the fall into sin, they were vegan. Just like they were naked and not ashamed, right? But that doesn't mean we have to be naked now and not ashamed. I'd be very ashamed if I had to walk around naked, right? Hopefully you all would too. 
I used to think that this was the case, vegan before the fall. I no longer believe that based on the command in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 given to mankind where Adam is told and Eve, male and female, are told to rule over and subdue the fish of the sea. Notice he mentions all these animals. The fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals on the earth, and the crawling things. When we read rule and subdue in English, we think it means, you know, like petting a rabbit. Or maybe the argument is often given when Adam named the animals. Rule and subdue. How do you rule and subdue the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, though? Well, in Hebrew, these words carry a harsher meaning than they do in English. And I think that they carry the idea that animal death existed before the fall. I believe that animals died natural deaths and part of ruling and subduing included, included sacrificing the animal and using it for meat or killing an animal and using it for clothing. Now, the purpose of this sermon is not to go into this in detail. And if you, can't, if you don't see this, that's fine. You know, Just make sure you have reason uh, for what you believe. But you can read a, a Ph.D. dissertation paper online. This is by a Hebrew, Hebrew professor. His name is Joshua John Van E. It's a very long paper, but it's, it's worth the read. And it's titled, Death in the Garden, an Examination of Original Immortality, Vegetarianism, and Animal Peace in the Hebrew Bible of Mesopotamia from 2013. Now, he details in his study the Hebrew words for rule or dominion, which is the word radah, and subdue, which is kabosh, and he shows that these terms are military conquest terms, or terms where somebody rules over a servant for warfare or for killing. If you want a condensed version of this understanding, you can find it in a book by Ben Stanhope called uh, Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum Misunderstands the Ancient Near Eastern Context of the Bible. Chapter 11 of that book goes into this. And he also did an 18-minute video teaching that you can find on YouTube, and I can send that to anybody who would like to watch that. It's very good. It kind of condenses it down. So I'm, I'm at the point now in my studies where I see Genesis 1, 29 through 30 giving additional information on what may be eaten. On the back of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, saying to rule over and subdue the fish, the birds, the animals, and the crawling things. This would be done by killing some animals for protection, using some animals for clothing. Think Genesis 3.21 with the coats of skin. I know we've been trained to think that was the first like real animal sacrifice, but the text really doesn't say that. I know the animal had to lose its life for the coats of skin, but it looks like the animal was just killed for the purpose of making the clothes for Adam and Eve. If you just read, read the text and leave it where it's at. Um, and then for eating purposes, for sacrificial purposes. In other words, all of the verses in the Torah that speak of animal sacrifices and eating of meat as part of our worship to the Creator. I believe all of that existed from the very beginning of man, from Adam. I believe it will exist in the kingdom where we'll eat these great barbecue meals at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> so that's my understanding of that. I want you to note in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is the chapter where we see the serpent deceives Adam and Eve and the curses are spelled out after the fall. And in the curses, there is no indication that animal death comes into being as part of the fall. 
Human death comes into being. He says, from dust you were taken, to dust you shall return. The ground is cursed. Pain and childbearing takes place now. The serpent, Satan, they're all mentioned, they're all cursed, but there's nothing in Genesis 3 saying now that sin has entered, now animals will start to die. It doesn't say that. The Apostle Paul also mentions this, and I have thought about this for years, and I was just a little, I think, afraid to believe it. But I think the best understanding of 1 Timothy 4, where he was warning Timothy about the doctrine of demons, two doctrines of demons. One, he said there's people that teach a doctrine of demons that forbid to marry. That's probably people who commanded to be celibate. Maybe like the Roman Catholics do for their bishops, right? They command them to be celibate. And the other was, they command to abstain from meats that Yahweh created to be received. Now, we know that the meats that we may receive as food are found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. I taught through 1 Timothy. Man, it's been a long time. I was young. I think it was maybe 2009. So I was still in my 20s. I may need to reteach that. I probably messed up a lot back then. (laughs) But I taught on this before showing how this doesn't violate the dietary laws because Paul is saying people are forbidding you to eat meats which were created to be received. And they're sanctified by not just prayer, but by the Word. The the place the Word sanctifies them is Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But, but, think about this. He says they were created to be received. When were they created? Not in Leviticus. They were created in Genesis 1. And Genesis 2, the reiteration, that's when they were created. And I think Paul is teaching us here they were created then to be received, in this context, as food. Yahweh created the clean animals to be food for mankind. So I believe that I used to be wrong in telling people that the original diet was just fruits and vegetables. As a brief side note, I do not believe there was human death before the fall. I think that's a big point in Genesis 3 and also in Romans 5. Some people try to use Romans 5 to teach that there was animal death before the fall. But the context of Romans 5 is about man and the redemption of man. But I don't believe that mankind was created biologically immortal. I think that Adam was taken from dust and he would return to dust and that includes mortality. However, I believe that he had the possibility of immortality based upon his close proximity and allowance to eat from the tree of life. Now we think Adam was already alive. Why does he need a tree of life? I'll tell you why. So that he can continue to live and never die. As long as he's in close proximity to the tree of life, he can sustain his life. Now, why do you believe that, Brother Matthew? This is the main verse. Genesis 3, 22-24 reads, After the fall, Yahweh Elohim said, Since man has become like one of us, I believe he's talking about the angelic host there, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So Yahweh Elohim sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out, and east of the Garden of Eden he stationed a cherubim with a flaming whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. I dare you to bore me with the Bible. The Bible's not boring. People just don't read it. <laughs> this is this is wild stuff, man. So he puts these cherubim, that's two angels there at least, 
there and he stations them with this flaming sword to guard the way to what? The tree of life. Yahweh says in Genesis 3, and I know a lot of people try to uh, metaphorical it away or explain it away, but he says he plants all these trees in this garden and he creates man and then he takes man and he puts him inside the garden. The Garden of Eden is paradise. It, it, it's beauty. Everything was good in that garden. Everything that Yahweh did was good. I can show you even in Psalm 104 where Yahweh talks about the predators, the young lions, how they get their food, and he calls it tov. He calls it good, just the same word that he uses in Genesis because I think that's how Yahweh created them to be. Well, here in Genesis 3 at the end, it shows us that the way that Adam could live forever was by partaking of one particular tree in the garden. He said there's one you, you're not supposed to eat of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life you may partake of. Well, they messed up. They took of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And guess what? Everybody in here has done the exact same thing. You may not have eaten exactly from the tree, but you chose to do, disobey something that Yahweh has told you to do. So I don't ever say, well, maybe I could have done better than Adam had I been back there. <laughs> because I've already messed that up too many times. <laughs> Way too many times. So the way that man would be sustained to live forever is not from his biological properties, how he was created, but because he was close to and could partake of the tree of life in paradise, the Garden of Eden. Beautiful garden that Yahweh created there in the beginning. I believe that animal sacrifice is the ancient form of worship in Scripture and that the eating of meat is a blessing throughout Scripture. And I think now that all of this has existed since the very beginning of mankind. I do not believe it was something introduced after the fall of man into sin or after the flood. And I actually, I may get in trouble for this, not here, but somebody else hears it. <laughs> I actually believe it is healthier to eat a well-rounded diet of meat, nuts, fruits, and vegetables. I'm not saying we should gorge ourselves on meat. I'm not saying we should have meat every night of the week. But I believe the healthiest diet is to eat everything that Yahweh gave us that was created to be received. I may have just caused everybody to have a whole new set of questions, right? <laughs> I appreciate everybody's attentiveness in this series of lessons. You don't have to agree with, with me on everything. Um, that's not my purpose. I don't stand up here to try to get everybody to see things how I see it. If you see it differently, that's fine. You go with what Yahweh is showing you. I'm just telling you what I feel that He's showing me. Uh, and I believe that sacrifices and eating meat are a, are a blessing for Yahweh's people. Um, doesn't mean we should be cruel to animals. Doesn't mean that everything that goes on in the food service is okay today. Um, uh, but that doesn't negate anything that Yahweh says in His law. Hallelujah. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, but stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. I'll never let anybody get you off of this book of the law. That's how we serve Yahweh. I love everybody. Shalom.